I'm assuming that uh, as a Blueprint listener, you're a devoted Blueprint listener. <laughs> These two things go hand in hand. Uh, if that's the case, you may well have picked up a bit of a program theme, uh, whether it's the, the grageification of interiors or the, the Patagoniafication of leisure wear or the, the camel-coloured stealth attire of the, the uber-rich or, or the explosion of Nutraface, the clean, sleek typeface that's... Uh, been dubbed the gentrification fonts. All these things give one the sense uh, that everything is starting to look increasingly the same, increasingly indistinguishable, minimal, a kind of emergent anti-aesthetic. It's a signifier, that anti-aesthetic, of perhaps class, status, perhaps also of a certain cultural malaise and decline. Uh, to make sense of all of this and to explain why these seemingly superficial cultural symptoms matter, we are going to enlist the assistance of two men, uh, Siegfried Krakauer and Tom Wilkinson. Uh, we will get to Siegfried momentarily. The latter, our Tom, is, is a lecturer in the history of architecture at Birkbeck University of London. Uh, history editor at the Architectural Review and, yes, long-time friend of this program. Tom, hello. Good morning, Jonathan. An introduction is necessary. Tom, who, who is this Siegfried Krakauer? I mean, broadly, rather than his biography, who, who is this man? So Krakauer, if he's known at all today, is probably best known as a film critic and a writer on film. He wrote a famous book, relatively famous, called From Caligari to Hitler, in which he tries to explain how the um, expressionist film of the 1920s in Germany ended up in the rise of the Nazi dictatorship. Mm. And the reason he took this as his subject is that Krakow was Jewish. Um, he was an exile from Nazi Germany who'd fled to the United States, and he wrote this book in exile. But before that, he'd been quite a well-known journalist in Germany between the wars in the Weimar Republic. And he'd been the editor of the culture section of the Frankfurter Zeitung, a Frankfurt newspaper, a liberal newspaper. And he wrote a series of pretty extraordinary articles for that newspaper. And they're still well worth reading today. He wrote on all sorts of subjects. And one of the things he wrote frequently about was spaces or architecture and that's because he was trained as an architect mm. but he wrote about it from quite a philosophical perspective uh, certainly a left-wing perspective he was a marxist and he wrote i mean his his writing is brilliant really brilliant but it's quite mind-boggling that it was published in a broadsheet paper Yes, perhaps inevitably drawn to the comparison with their own time and wonder if such things might be possible, perhaps not. Yeah, it's hard to imagine something like his <laughs> text, for example, his, his very famous essay on the mass ornament, which is about um, troops of dancing girls. They were a pop phenomenon of their day, um, a worldwide smash hit, these sort of synchronised dancing uh, troops like the Tiller girls and on the basis of this this phenomenon he draws out uh, quite a mind-bending analysis of the, the decline of enlightenment reason nothing less than that 
So it's a bit hard to imagine something like that being being printed in a newspaper. Well, it's a good arc, but it's in this territory that we, in particular, now in terms of this program, find him of interest and and find explanation for the significance of things like the Grey's interior. And I want to quote a, a sentence from his epistemological manifesto. On this point, he says that the position that an epoch occupies in the historical process can be determined more strikingly from an analysis of its inconspicuous surface level expressions than from the epoch's judgments about itself. So it's those little things, is it not, Tom, that, that give us the clues to the broader cultural movement and significance? This is it, exactly. So he was interested in these surface level phenomena he's often associated with the surface of things uh, but finding quite um incredible significance in the surface so in terms of architecture he was interested in things like hotel lobbies cinema design city streets in in the modern metropolis like berlin and big entertainment venues so he looks at these spaces and he looks at the way they're designed and the way that people act in them to try and figure out what's going on and what's going wrong in in German society of the 1920s and, and early 30s. And there was certainly a lot going wrong in those in those days. Yes. I mean, he looks, looks at them in particular uh, to, to, to try and work out what's going on with this, this new middle class, a, a group that he describes as being spiritually homeless. This is one of his key interests, the new middle class. Uh, We might call them petty bourgeois. We might call them lower middle class. Um, They were people like um, shop workers, lower ranking civil servants, clerks in in big firms. Um, And this was a pretty new phenomenon in Germany of the time. These people maybe had come from worker backgrounds or maybe even farmer backgrounds. There was a a big movement into the cities at the time. And these people were a new kind of, of social grouping. And people looked at them and thought, what do these people want? What's What are their ideas? What are their thoughts? People were worried about them. People were worried about their politics. And people looked down on them as well, it has to mm. be said. There was a lot of snobbery about these people, about their tastes, about their activities, about their way of life. Um, and Krakauer and he's not entirely original about this, but Krakauer looks at these people and says that essentially they're like the working class in terms of their economic means, but they feel that they're middle class. They feel sympathy with the with the bourgeoisie um, and they don't want to be associated with the working class. Um, and so that's why he says that they're spiritually homeless. Um, and he thinks that they find a home in these modern spaces like hotel lobbies, nightclubs, bars. I'm just going to, if I may, read a, a short sentence mm. on this. These spaces inculcate in the so-called middle class the conviction that even with a modest income, they can maintain the appearance of belonging to bourgeois society. So they have every reason to be content as the middle class. But he says, you know, the problem is that this impression is false. They actually live very precarious lives um, with very modest means, but they're conned into feeling that they have a stake in um, the dominant forces in society and they're conned by um, architectural means. I suspect listeners are getting tremors of recognition from from your description of that, that, that moment and that 
that precarious and yet upward-looking lower middle class. Yes, and something that's interesting on this topic has been published recently by a guy called Dan Evans. Um, He's written a book called A Nation of Shopkeepers. It came out earlier this year, and it's specifically about Britain, but I think it might be applicable in Australia and, and many other countries as well. And he argues that the lower middle class has expanded enormously. So you've got all of the traditional lower middle class people like shopkeepers and and small landlords, um, small business people. But he argues that there's a huge and growing new lower middle class made up of downwardly mobile middle class people, young people with degrees, but in precarious work, pretty much the vast majority of millennials, in fact, and a lot of older people as well. And Dan Evans' argument, and again, this is not entirely original, is that the lower middle class has been hugely expanded intentionally in Britain when Thatcher got rid of social housing and expanded home ownership. She did that intentionally to turn a lot of working class people into lower middle class people, people who had a stake in society via home ownership, but it's a precarious stake that that causes a lot of anxiety and that causes people to want to cling on to the way things are and to to, to try and hold on to the little things that they do possess. This takes us uh, to, well, the thing that sparked this, this conversation and it occurred on Twitter, speaking of spiritually homeless, um, a tweet that, that you put out that, that really Took our, took our interest. You said this, people seem to want to live in houses decorated like four-star hotels these days. And I think Siegfried Krakow would have something to say about it. What do you think that thing would be, Tom? Now, the, <laughs> this is going to be very much off the cuff, um, theorising on the hoof, as it were. But one of the, the thing that struck me is that, so Siegfried Krakow in the 20s said that these new middle classes go out looking for these, he calls them shelters for the homeless, these big entertainment venues, cinemas, bars, um, department stores, because their home life is depressing, cramped. It reminds Mm. them that they're actually working class. But they can get, uh, they can, they can sort of pretend that they're middle class by going out to these amazing big venues. And he There's another wonderful sentence. I'm just going to quote this one. They they seek out a world, every last corner of which is cleansed, as though with a vacuum cleaner of the dust of everyday existence. He's very good, you know. (laughs) He's wonderful, isn't he? And it strikes me that the lower middle classes used to have to go out to these these big venues to find a, a world cleansed as if with a vacuum cleaner. But if we think about these interiors these greyish interiors that always are presented so perfectly, so so clean, everything in its place, like in a hotel lobby. It seems to me that this has now come home, this space, where the, this totally cleansed space. And it's very easy to be snobby about this, and I don't want to, to be snobby about it. And um, I don't think Krakow is a snob about it either, because the thing is that Krakow himself was a member of this new middle class. He was a, he'd been a precarious architectural employee, and then later on he was a freelance journalist. So he was sort of speaking about what he knew. He loved going to the cinema. He liked to hang out in these spaces. And I suppose, you know, 
I too am a, a precariously employed person, so perhaps I'm a member of the new uh, lower middle class myself. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way as a disclaimer. <laughs> I'm not. I don't want to be a, a snobbish about these these trends in interior design, but it does seem that people when they fill their rooms with these very grey, everything grey, everything crushed velvet, everything the same, they're trying to produce a soothing world in which everything has its place uh, to to try and anchor themselves in a very uncertain world. Um, these are, These interiors are often in, I guess, new build houses that are mortgaged to the hilt. In Britain, certainly, you know, the mortgage market is looking very perilous indeed. Um, So this is an existence built entirely on debt, usually. Mm. And so to to, to try and make these interiors as as actually, you know, the, the home is the place in a sense of great danger, both for the political system and for these people, because the wheels are about to come off. Um, this new middle class that's built on debt and mortgages. So these interiors seem to me to be a kind of place of amnesia. Well, and a place also of, of comfort and safety. Of comfort and safety, but actually, yeah, uh, the problem is that it's 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 also this place of of uh, great danger that's being being covered up by this this tide of uh, mm. crushed grey velvet. I mean, there's there's two things to, to draw from all of that, and and I think the first is to 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 pay heed to these things, and in in the Krakowian, if that's the word, manner to extrapolate from that that small grayish interior to a broader social pattern, and wonder what that is saying, uh, and and well, the second is to yes, re- remark upon. To see these manifestations, um, and they they are so numerous, and there is a, a a bit of a trend between them, between the grey interior, between the the Patagonian leisure wear. Yeah, I can't speak about um, Patagonian leisure wear because that's a bit beyond my remit. Stick but, with um, the grey, Tom. Stick with the grey. <laughs> Um, but I do think as well, I think, uh, as I said previously, there's something of the hotel lobby about these spaces. And so I think it's interesting to think about what that means, because the hotel lobby is, as Krakow says, it's a place where you go to wait. And it's a place where you're you're not exactly at home. And although you might be there with strangers, you don't come together as a community. Uh, it's a kind of place of uh, atomized waiting. Mm. And I wonder what it means to turn the home into a space of, of atomized waiting where you, you can't feel entirely at home because, you know, everything's, I mean, they must be a nightmare to clean apart from anything else, these these grey interiors. It's hardly stain uh, resistant to have everything so pale. And so I wonder if, you, you know, you can ever feel truly uh, comfortable there. At home um, and relaxed. What? Yeah. The hotel lobbies of, of, of Krakow's time, the, the Weimar Hotel Lobby, can you describe that for us? Yeah, so there was um, some very famous hotels at the time, the Adlon, for example, in Berlin. And they were very, I mean, the Adlon certainly was extremely plush. It's where all the film stars stayed. And they were represented in the illustrated papers of the day, I guess the Hello magazines of the day, which was a new medium in itself. And some of them would have been a bit more Baroque, you know, kind of gilt frames. Other ones would have been more up-to-date, modernist style, I would say, chrome and glass, that Mm. kind of thing. 
So they varied. And Krakauer says, you know, the sort of, um, I mean, this is a, another great example of him spinning out his analysis of interiors to a much vaster significance. He says, in tasteful lounge chairs, a civilization intent on rationalization comes to an end. Um, bit portentous, that one. Um, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, in particular. <laughs> well, with the benefit of hindsight, yes, this is the thing. I mean, maybe at the time, to some of his readers, it might have they might have thought, what on earth is he going on about? But with the benefit of hindsight, he was dead on the money. Why does a, a disenchanted young architect uh, fix on these ideas, I wonder? What, what was it about his architectural practice that began to illuminate you know, the, the, this, this progression of ideas? Um, so Krakow was, um, he was a bit of an unwilling architect in some ways. Um, he came from a middle-class background, but not an especially rich one, and his family encouraged him to go into a profession and he was he was a good drawer so he ended up in architecture and during the war he worked on a variety of projects he uh, designed a war cemetery in Frankfurt and a workers housing in a in a small german town in the northwest but he didn't enjoy it very much he found um, the work boring frustrating he hated being on site he was um he loved to read you know he was reading all sorts of stuff um Nietzsche like every young person at the time but also sociology um and he read he was particularly keen on a on a early German sociologist called Georg Simmel and it's from Simmel that he really gets this idea of looking at the minutiae of everyday life and finding great significance in it and Krakauer, he he found it hard to get steady work in architecture after the war, especially. You know, it was a terrible economic crisis in Germany. There was the hyperinflation, which followed on from the revolution. Um, so there wasn't really a great deal of work for architects. And so he ended up going into journalism, but he wanted to write really. And, and that's how he ended up working for the newspaper in Frankfurt. Um, so it was the combination of all these factors, a dissatisfaction with the trade itself, with the profession of architecture and his his reading, the circumstances, the political and economic circumstances, um, which came together to to make him the cultural critic that he was. I mean, it's interesting too, because, I mean, architecture is a, is a culturally influential form and, and the architecture of that early modernist period was a thing invested with great social hope. So to to see, as, as Krakow must have done, uh, a greater possibility in, in the life of words and then in the life of buildings is sort of, it's, it's an interesting jump. It is an interesting jump. And he did sometimes write about the, the famous modernist design of his period, people like Mies van der Rohe. And he starts off cautiously admiring them, but later on he he pretty quickly, in fact, becomes quite sceptical about the social potential of this new design. And again, I'm going to I'm going to read you a, a, a short quote from him. He says that this 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 new design, this, these clean new lines, it's a facade concealing nothing. So in the end, he was pretty sceptical about <laughs> tell, this. Tell, tell us what you really think, Siegfried. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks that this. 
uh, Neues Achlichkeit, or the new objectivity, as it was known at the time, uh, was a kind of false objectivity that concealed the, the chaos of the capitalist economy. So he thought that there wasn't actually, in the end, anything very politically radical about this new design. He thought that it was just another way of concealing the, the, the danger that German society was in in the 20s and 30s. So what do you think, Tom, just as a sort of a closing observation? I mean, uh, the, I mean the resonances you can feel from his time to ours and, and, and that, that analysis of small things has perhaps similar messages for us. But how, how, how closely can we draw those two, do you think? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because, I mean, I don't want to end this on too depressing a note, but Krakauer published, a, a, so his his book on the lower middle classes, or as it's been translated, the salaried masses, was published in 1930. So it was before the rise of Hitler, but he could already see trouble coming. And indeed, it was, to a greater or lesser extent, the lower middle classes who ended up voting for Hitler. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're going exactly the same way, but there is trouble brewing. Um, and I wonder if we can find in these these strangely aseptic interiors, uh, which seem mm. to be trying to be a haven from a troubled world, any signs that, that, that trouble is coming as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not Krakauer. I don't perhaps have the... Uh, the same skills with the microscope when it comes to uh, interior design, the same diagnostic skills that he did. And I wouldn't want to put money on the fact that we can read in the, the uh, crushed grey velvet the uh, symptoms of an uh, incipient social collapse. I, I think that might be overdoing it a bit. But I do think that there are very interesting parallels to be drawn with with his analysis and and the current situation. Well, and Tom, elegantly done uh, on this occasion by your good self. So thank you. There there is there is tremendous food for thought there, and and perhaps that impetus to take um, slightly closer attention to the, the the ubiquitous small stuff that surrounds us. Thank you, Jonathan. Tom Wilkinson, uh, lecturer in the history of architecture at Birkbeck University of London, and history editor of the Architectural Review. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.